The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, it would be hard to imagine that anyone uh, would not want to be uh, successful in what they do for the Lord. Uh, The drive uh, to succeed that I think is in uh, most of us, if not all of us, is what brought Charlie Brown uh, back again and again and again and again uh, to try and kick that football. Uh, Most would say, thinking about that, most would say that Charlie Brown was never successful because Lucy always pulled the football out before he got there uh, to kick it. And then others would say, but you know what? Charlie Brown was successful in the sense that he never gave up. He always kept coming back. He always gave it another shot. And in that sense, he was successful. And, and really, just in that, in that alone, what constitutes success becomes such a challenge for us. What does it truly mean to be successful? Now, we're back in our... Uh, series in the Gospel of Luke. Okay. That's great. That's what the pause was for. We're back in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Yes. Picking up today in chapter 10, we're going to look at the first 24 verses. We're not quite halfway there. A long way to go yet in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but in this passage, he sends out a 72 of his followers, a distinct group from the 12, but he sends out 72 followers on this a specific mission kind of as an advance team uh, after they go to these towns, they're being sent out two by two. After they go to these towns, Jesus and the 12 are gonna come after them. And uh, when they came back from this little mission that Jesus sent them on, by Jesus' measure, how many people think that's the most important measure? You think that? By Jesus' measure, these 72 were successful in what they accomplished for him. And we're gonna see in the passage as this all plays out, kind of the criteria for what it means to be successful according to Jesus, and uh, that's going to help us determine if what we're doing for Christ is uh, considered successful by him. None of us want to be wasting our time, amen? None of us want to be wasting our time uh, not getting the job done. So the question is, how does Jesus measure measure success in what I do for him? That's what we're going to go after. Dan's already prayed for us. Here we go. Number one, obedience. This seems like a great starting point. I do what he tells me to do. That's it. First couple of verses here. This is Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus sends these 72 out, and it seems that they're ready to go. There's no sense that any of them are not going. So they're ready to do the thing that he's telling them to do. But then he tells them also, pray that others are going to do this as well. In fact, in that, there's a sense that there's so much work to do. Because this harvest is plentiful, it's going to take a lot more than 72 to get it done. It's going to take more than 72 plus 12 to get it done. In fact, let me ask you this question, because we're 2,000 years now after this account in the scriptures. Is there still a lot of work to do? Still plenty to do. 
Still plenty to do. In fact, Jeannie's over here to my left, and, and um, uh, Chad's, Chad's also here this morning, two, two of our staff members who oversee a lot of different teams in our church. And let me just ask you, Jeannie, is there still a lot of work to do? Is the harvest plentiful? Are, are the workers few? Yes, they are. Jeannie will always answer it that way. There, there's lots of needs. Chad and, and Jeannie were both telling me this week, lots of needs in our welcome ministry, in our connections ministry, help people feel welcome when they come here, in our kids' ministry, lots of needs. And, and, and that's never going to end. And we need to be engaged in that. We have these 72 being told 2,000 years ago, pray that others are going to join your team. Pray that others are going to carry on the work. And in fact, there's more than a little bit of foreshadowing going on here of the whole effort that we're engaged in right now. Luke is authoring this gospel, but then he's going to author uh, the book of Acts later on. And we see the transfer after the resurrection of Christ of all these responsibilities to the church to go into the uttermost parts of the world preaching the gospel, sharing the message of Jesus Christ, planting churches. So that what we're doing here is an extension of the charge that Jesus gave to the 72. They prayed for us to do exactly what we're doing right now. But now let me say this. This message is really only for those who are actually doing something and can measure the success of that. So this message is not for you if you're not engaged in any way in serving Jesus Christ, if you're unengaged, there's nothing to measure. We're talking about measuring our engagement in ministry to see if it's successful. But if you're not doing anything, there's nothing to measure. And so this isn't a message for you. At least the message for you ends right here. You need to get in the game first and then come back to the rest of this. You need to see that the harvest is plentiful, that the, the needs are many, that, that thousands and thousands and tens of thousands in this city alone don't know Jesus Christ. The people are in need of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And so obey Christ's call. There's no other way to say it. Uh, you're certainly not successful if you're not engaged in the mission. Do what he tells you to do. Uh, secondly, this. Endurance. Overcome all obstacles. Let's pick up the reading again of verse 3. He tells the 72, go your way. Go, by the way, is the first of eight commands that come in this passage. You can, you can see them all as we read through them. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound like a great mission to me, uh, but there they go. In other words, they're going to face some hostility as they go out. They're even going to face some violent opposition to the things that they're about to do. He says, carry no money bag. Don't take any money with you. Don't take any uh, way to provide for yourself. I want you to feel uh, some vulnerability as you go out so there will be a great dependence on the Lord. Don't take any money with you. No knapsack, no change of clothes. No extras, no sandals even, not an extra pair of sandals. I mean, he's telling them to go barefoot, which had all kinds of challenges of its own to go barefoot, but really was a symbol of poverty, of being destitute, 
and again, he wanted them very vulnerable, and he wanted them going in showing that the greatest gift of all, the greatest possession they could possibly have, are not shoes in your feet, not the basics of life, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most valuable thing. So he tells them, uh, uh, no sandals. Then greet no one on the road. Does that kind of sound like Jesus is telling them to be rude? Like don't, don't wave to people? Don't say hi to people. Don't be polite to people. It's not what it is at all. But in the ancient Near East, like when you saw somebody, if you were going through a village or you were passing somebody that you knew, I mean, in the ancient Near East, the custom was you had to stop and talk. This wasn't just a simple, hey, how you doing? And then you keep going. This was a, hey, how's your family? How are things going for you? Let's sit down. Let's have some tea. Let's spend an hour together. Would you like a meal? Would you hang out with the, for the night with us? And you're supposed to receive all this uh, hospitality that was being offered to you. And so you could be seriously delayed on a journey. It could take a long time to get somewhere because you never knew when you were going to so see somebody. You had no Facebook, no interacting by text. This was important. And Jesus is saying there, there's an urgency to this mission and you can't just stop and, and say hi to people and spend all that time with them. You need to get to the thing I told you to do. That's what he means by that. Where are we at? Verse five, whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. So if someone rejects it, don't worry about that. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. So the first house you go to that offers you, in the town that I sent you to, in the town that you go to, the first house that you go to, stay there. The laborer deserves his wages, so you can go ahead and receive their hospitality. But it says, do not go from house to house. So, so if you're preaching, and then some people who have a nicer house than the one you stopped at, they invite you to go to their house, and you know they have better food and a nicer place and a better part of town... And you go, well, you know, this is an upgrade, and they're being, like, really nice to me, and they're welcoming me there. I'm going to move from this kind of dumpy place over to this other place. And Jesus says, don't do that because it's going to hinder the gospel. People are going to think you're in it for profit. So just stay in the same house. Whenever you enter a town and, and they receive you, eat whatever's set before you. Don't be picky about the food. Well, Jesus is addressing in each of these commands, the initial command to go and then all the other commands to really just absorb anything that happens to you. And so any objections based on how hard the ministry uh, might be are really being removed by Jesus here. There's nothing that should hinder or stop this ministry. And having gone through that list, you can kind of set it up in, in categories, if you will, or just say, here's the obstacles that these 72 faced as they went out on the mission. Violent opposition, poverty, weakness, shame, and the loss of personal comforts. All of that gone, those are the obstacles that they had to overcome to endure the mission Jesus had set before him. Now listen, I'm thinking about ourselves here, and I'm thinking like the obstacles to us serving are significantly different than those ones. I don't think anybody here has been threatened with getting beat up or their house burned down because they served in Harvest Kids this morning. I don't think that happened. Anybody? Anybody? You see, when I start to think about the, the obstacles that uh, people have in front of them now for serving, it's more th things like this, and I, I think they're a little less noble. I'm just too tired on weekends to serve. Or I, I work a lot. 
Or I, I commute a long way every week, and so when, by the time I get to my weekend, I just don't have it in me. Well, my, my family's actually my priority, so I don't have time to serve. You know, we, we just got married. We just got married. We just had a kid. We just had another kid. We just had another kid. So we don't have time. Our kids are involved in sports and, and there's so much going back and forth and we're, we're running them to this and that. So there's no time to serve. We prefer to go away on weekends. We have a cottage, we have a trailer. We have too many problems of our own. I'm in college. Not, not very enduring. The obstacles we face significantly less threatening and costly than those that the 72 faced. And Jesus' point in all of this, and you can wrestle it down with him personally, but Jesus' point in all of this is that nothing should keep us from our task. Nothing should keep us from our mission. We're successful when we're not using these excuses when we're enduring and overcoming all obstacles to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, ready for number three? <laughs> You're not sure. I think I got enough already, Todd. How about you just close in prayer? Ready for number three? Simplicity. I, foc I focus on the message of the gospel. I haven't been here for two weeks, so I got a lot in me, okay? I focus, I focus on the message of the gospel. Now, Jesus makes it clear in verse 9 what they're supposed to do. He keeps it pretty simple. Heal the sick in it. He's talking about villages. Heal the sick in every village and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Period. End of sentence. That's, that's the mission, and he wants them to keep it super, super simple. Meet needs. Tell people about Jesus. Love people, share the gospel would be another way to say it. That's it. That's the whole. And you know what? That describes our mission. Love people, share the gospel. Now, when I, when I think about the simplicity of all of that, and I think about all the energy that goes into things that are not the gospel, things that we can get involved with that are not the gospel, I know a lot of energy goes into raising money for animals and the environment, for diseases and disasters. A lot of energy goes into raising money for playgrounds and programs of all kinds. But none of that, none of that has eternal value. It's all temporal. It all ends when this life ends. Not wrong, okay, hear me, not wrong. It's okay to make this life better, but when more energy is going into that than into the gospel, we as the followers of Jesus Christ who have been entrusted with this mission, no one else is gonna do this mission, and we have a problem. Those things are not eternal. And then I, and then I know people, 
Again, we're, trying to, we're talking about the simplicity of the gospel. What are we really supposed to be about? But I know all these people who are just like followers of Jesus Christ who are just going mental right now over same-sex marriage and over who uses which bathroom and over physician-assisted suicide and over the legalization of marijuana. So many believers just going mental over all of this right now and they're confusing the culture wars with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our mandate is to share the good news about Jesus with a dying world, not to reform our culture's morality. We have lots of hurting people around us, individuals that we know, friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. We can get so caught up in the culture war and neglect the people that are right around us who need to hear about Jesus and have their individual life transformed by him. You know, the darker it gets, and our society's getting darker. Not everybody recognizes it, but it is. But the darker it gets in our culture, the greater the light of Jesus Christ shines into that darkness. We are, Jesus declared, the light of the world. We're to bear that light to a dark and dying world. So let's do our job. Let's keep it simple because this is our moment to shine as the society around us gets darker. Keep it to the gospel. The simple gospel that God created us in his image. He created us perfect and without sin, but we rebelled against our God. And the condemnation of our sin was that we would be separated from our God, that separation exists between us and our Creator, putting us under the condemnation of death and face to face with being eternally separated from our God. But the Father loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as a perfect sinless savior who offered himself as a substitution, dying in, dying in your place on the cross. And if you would only believe that simple gospel truth and accept the free gift of salvation that he offers, you will receive the forgiveness of sin and life in him for all eternity. Make your life about that. And for some here this morning, that's the part you needed to hear because you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the part you need to have. The message is about you coming to faith in Christ in this very moment. You don't need anybody's help to do that. Just you and the Holy Spirit. And for others of us, it's a call to simplify things again and get back to the gospel. All right, number four, trust. I'm going to leave the outcome to him. Let's pick it up in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet 
we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now these Jewish towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, there's an expectation here by Jesus as he sends out the 72 that they're not going to repent. There's an expectation that they're going to reject the message of Jesus Christ, and he pronounces, you can see here, a woe or a curse on each of them. And then he mentions three pagan cities, three non-Jewish cities, three cities where the worship of Yahweh was scorned. Really three cities, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, that are the, the, the poster child, each of them, for wanton disregard for God and sinfulness, rampant sinfulness. Tyre and Sidon regularly oppressed Israel and had no respect for her. Sodom is Sodom. I mean, you don't even need to say anything. The word equals evil. And yet Jesus says here that if Tyre and Sidon saw what Capernaum saw, they would have repented. That those three pagan towns are going to be in better shape at the judgment than these three Jewish towns. Why? Because these three Jewish towns had their Messiah standing in their streets proclaiming the message of life in him. And they rejected it. They rejected him. And the 72 were told, if that happens... And as you're leaving town, you don't have any sandals on, but you're going to have some dust on your feet, go ahead and wipe that dust off your feet as a symbolic gesture and let the people know that when you were there, you told them the kingdom of heaven was close. And Jesus is telling the 72, in essence, some are going to reject the message and some are going to receive the message, but none of that is really of any consequence to you. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're not responsible for the results. You have to trust him. You have to just do your part and leave the rest to him. And churches struggle here and church, people in churches struggle here because we, we all, again, we want to be part of something successful. And so we start to measure things in the only way that we know how to measure things to say that they're a success. We start measuring numbers. And so a successful church in our mind, pastors struggle with this uh, especially, but in our minds, the way that we measure success is um, how many people came to church this weekend? How many people are in your church? And we make a value judgment on the basis of that. How many people have made a profession of faith in Christ? How many people did you baptize last year? How many people are members of your church? Those four criteria plus one more, are you making budget? How much money's coming in? Do you have extra? Are you doing other things with the money that you've got? And these become the measure of success. 
But are those really the measure of success? Are there large, well-funded churches that are unsuccessful in actually fulfilling the gospel mission that Jesus gave to us? And are there small churches that are very effective and successful in the eyes of Jesus Christ? I would I'd say yes to both of those. I came across the story this week of a man by the name of William Leslie. He was a doctor born in London, Ontario in the 1800s. And in the late 1800s, he worked as a medical missionary with the American Baptist Missionary Union. And during the last 17 years of his time as a missionary in Africa, he was in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he set up a base in a, an area called Vanga. And he would visit, he would uh, largely welcome people to his base, but then he would also visit people across uh, the Quilu River, the Yancey people. And uh, once a year he would go and kind of visit their villages and help them out a little bit and preach the gospel. And he, after 17 years, he left the work in 1929 and returned home. And until his death nine years later, he believed that his ministry had failed. He had not really seen any converts, no churches had been established. He thought it was all for nothing, his 17 years in the jungle. But the reality is that the seeds that he had planted through his educational efforts, through his literacy training, he established schools, through his medical care, his clinic, and his gospel preaching, actually resulted in a vibrant community of believers who really only got established long after he had left and after he had passed from this world. The natives of that area, in fact, had built their own, apart from the help of any missionaries, their own stone cathedral that could seat, listen, a thousand people. And people were walking for hours and hours and hours weekly to come to this one cathedral on the other side of the river where they would all gather and they would pack the place out so much, again, without the help of any missionaries, they realized that the better thing to do now that this church was so strong and busting at the seams was to plant a church in each of the eight villages across the river, all on their own. Missionaries came decades later to try and reach this unreached people group. And what they found when they crossed the river were vibrant communities in all of those tribal villages buried deep in the jungle and this stone cathedral where they would gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Leslie felt his work had been fruitless. He died thinking he had accomplished nothing. And the Holy Spirit used all the seeds that he planted to establish a strong, vibrant, indigenous church on the other side of the Quilu River. You and I simply don't know what God will do with our efforts to share the good news with others. We might, may not think that in the ministry that we have we're making much of an impact at all, but you're successful when you're doing your part. And when you trust him to work with that to bring about his glory, some are going to receive it, some are going to reject it, but you just do your part. And how about this? Just trust the Holy Spirit to do his part. How's that work out? Trust him and leave the outcome to him. All right, still doing okay? Everybody doing okay? It's a, it's a, it's a hot day for a seven-point message. I get it. Let's keep going. 
Three to go. Responsibility. I understand the weight of my task. I found this the hardest part of the passage for me personally, and uh, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. Jesus says to the 72, and he, he says it to us as well. This is verse 16 now. The one who hears you hears me. You should have that underlined. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if they reject you, they're rejecting Jesus. If they're rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God the Father. It's a wholesale thing. And I, I think about this phrase, that first phrase, the one who hears you hears me. And I think about the responsibility, what that means for me as a preacher, what it means for those who are teachers and harvest kids and small group leaders and facilitating the understanding of God's word and the application of it. The one who hears you hears me, Jesus says. So that when I'm speaking the gospel and sharing God's word and teaching these truths, I'm speaking for God. Now, I, that's not a, please don't hear that the wrong way. That's not an, an arrogant statement. It's not a presumptuous statement. Really, what that puts on me, I'm not, I'm not puffing myself up thinking, hey, listen, you need to listen to me because I'm speaking for God. It's not that at all. It's more like I, I'm, I'm kind of wilting under the weight of that. And it, it piles on the pressure to make sure that when I'm opening God's word for you, that I have to get it right. I have to spend the time to make sure it's right because I understand the weight and responsibility of all of this. That when I'm speaking for God, he's speaking through me. And that's an overwhelming realization. But that's not just about the preacher or the teacher. That's about every single one of us. No matter what you do through your actions and through your words and through the manner of your life, you're speaking for Jesus Christ. If people know that you're a follower of Christ, if you've testified to that at all, then your life becomes this declaration of who Jesus is. And people are watching. How many people in this room, you're, you're old enough to remember the old uh, contemporary Christian band, the Imperials? Raise your hand and show how old you are, all right? Just a handful of people. The Imperials had this song that they sang uh, many, many years ago. You are the only Jesus some will ever see. You are the only Jesus some will ever see. And it's so important to grasp that as we understand the weight of responsibility attached to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Is six, satisfaction. I'm successful when I have satisfaction. I find joy in what he calls me to do. Verse 17, the 72 return. So they go out on their mission. They've preached. Some received. Some rejected. The 72 return. Notice what it says. They returned with, what does it say? With joy. Get that underlined in your Bible. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Awesome things happened when we were on our mission. Lord, you're not going to believe what happened. They were fired up about how God had worked and what they had been able to accomplish along the way. 
Now, we're going to see in the next point that Jesus kind of redirects their joy just a little bit, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't put them down for the joy. He affirms the joy that's in their heart about all of this. The joy wasn't wrong. God wants us, in fact, to be excited and elated and satisfied and fulfilled and energized about him and about what we get to do for him and for his kingdom. I don't want anybody to serve in this church. And, 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 and when I say that Jeannie needs people and Chad needs people and there's lots of needs, I don't want anybody here to go to either one of them and say, I want to serve because I coerced you or because I guilted you into it or because you feel some wrong-headed sense of obligation about it. Yes, there's an obligation as a follower of Jesus Christ to be serving somewhere, but that can't be the primary motivation. Yes, it comes with the force of a command from the Lord himself, but that can't be the reason why I do it. I want to do it. It's in my heart to do it. Jesus loved me so much that I can't help but do it because I love him and I love people. That's the reason to do it. So it isn't that a disciple worships Jesus and walks with Jesus and works for Jesus and therefore I'm gonna just check off each one of those and make sure I got a check mark beside work for Jesus. That isn't it. There should be joy in what you do. You should want to do it and be satisfied with what you do for him. If you worked with Harvest Kids this weekend, I hope you return home with joy. That's what they did. They returned home with joy at what they got to do. If you got to park cars uh, today, if that was your ministry, I hope you did it with joy in your heart. And when you go home, you feel joy about the fact that you did that, especially since it's not February now. If you stood on stage and you led us in worship today, I hope it wasn't just something you did because you're on a schedule. I hope you were up here and that coming down and having led God's people in worship, I hope there's joy in your hearts over that, that you return home with joy this afternoon and having led God's people in worship. If you were on the tabernacle team and came here yesterday at two o'clock in the afternoon on a beautiful day and set up all of these chairs, if that's what you did, I hope you went home with joy in your hearts that you got to do it knowing that people are gonna sit here and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're tearing it all down, I want you to have the same thought and go home with joy at having done it. If you have the gift of giving and you exercised your gift and you gave generously, I hope there's joy in your heart over your giving. If you prayed through these halls this morning or yesterday, if you interceded for people on the basis of the prayer list that we give out every week, I hope you returned home with joy when you said the amen at having had the privilege to pray for God's people. If you shared your faith or lived for Jesus in the face of opposition, if you loved someone in his name, if you extended a hand of healing to someone who was hurting, I hope you returned home with joy in having done that. Jesus measures success by the joy that we have in serving him. And finally this, gratitude. I'm just so thankful for what he's done for me. I told you that Jesus made a small correction to what they had said. Namely this, that their sense of joy would be properly directed toward him and toward the salvation that they had in Christ and not in the things that they were doing. 
So verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is yet a future thing that he's looking uh, for us, it's future. For the 72, it was future. This is a prophetic statement. But for Jesus, who as God stands outside of time, he knows this has already happened. All right? He's seeing it as, a, as an accomplished fact. And he's giving his credentials to say what he's going to say next. He says, I've seen Satan defeated. This whole thing's over. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, two little symbols of evil. Okay, this is not permission to whack job preachers to establish snake handling churches. It's not that. It's just that like whatever you can think of that's the most evil thing in the world, that's not going to stop you from your mission. That's what he's saying. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you're saved. Rejoice that God cleansed you from your sins. Rejoice that you get to be part of this. That's where our praising needs to be. In that same hour, verse 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, a Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. He's speaking of the 72 and of us. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. By the way, that paragraph, that's got a lot of Trinity in it. You know what I'm talking about? It's all right there. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You have the Messiah right in front of you. You have the message of the gospel right in front of you. God's revealing everything right now. And he's providing you with salvation and all the benefits of salvation, and you get to see it and you get to hear it. That's no different from this, for the 72 than it is for us. We get to see the benefits of the gospel. We get to see the benefits of the life-transforming power of the Word of God in people's lives. We get to hear it when people are baptized and, and, and how Jesus Christ transformed them. We get to see it and hear it and experience it. And it's a privilege to personally experience the benefits of the gospel and to see that happening in the lives of others. And the successful servant of Jesus Christ gets that and he's grateful for it. So you see the seven words, obedience and endurance and simplicity and trust, responsibility, satisfaction and gratitude. And really my challenge to you this week is to take those seven criteria and look at your own ministry. What are you doing to serve Jesus Christ and to serve his people and to serve this world? What effort are you putting into that? Take those seven things and just say, am I measuring up? Am I successful at what I'm doing? And then turn yourself over to the Lord for his great work in your life as you do that. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.